The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 185 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Before we get into our amazing conversation, I do want to thank two listeners who left us reviews on Apple Podcast. Uh, first of all, R.S. Turley, who said the show is sunshine for the soul. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words and your five-star review. We really appreciate it. As well as username Bethy Over 10 on Apple Podcast, who just loved our interview with Mark Pope. Bethy Over 10 is a big basketball fan. And I was just thrilled to hear Mark Pope's story. And by the way, as you know, I too am a huge basketball fan and a big Mark Pope fan. I love that conversation as well. Thank you so much. These five-star reviews really help us to be found on Apple Podcast, and we very much appreciate it. I also want to send a special shout out to a couple of amazing sister missionaries. I actually posted a picture of this on our social media But uh, we are in uh, Oregon, on the Oregon coast, for fall break this week, and we were in Newport, walking down the bayfront, and my son said, hey, are those sister missionaries? And sure enough, they were. So we called over to uh, Sister Hill and Sister Hayes, two sisters who are serving in Corvallis, but they were down in um, Newport for a, a meeting, a zone meeting. And we got to spend some time talking with them, and their energy for the gospel was just infectious. And we were so blessed to get to know them. And then I got the most wonderful message from Sister Hill's mother, Wendy, and I want to say hello to Wendy. Wendy is a listener to the podcast, and Sister Hill called her up and and reached out to her. She was able to call because it was her sister's birthday, and she had mentioned that we had met, and uh, Sister Hill is... Sister Hill, Wendy Hill, Sister Hill's mother, is a listener to the show, and so we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for reaching out. So great to hear from you, and your daughter, as well as Sister Hayes, are super impressive. That was really neat to get to meet them. Uh, This week on the show, my conversation is one I will never forget. It is literally life-changing. Ryan Evans has a story so filled with heartbreak and yet with redemption and conversion. It's just incredible. I will give you a little bit of a warning that uh, some of the themes we're going to discuss do include prison and uh, crime and drugs and some things that Ryan was into in the past. And uh, of course, as always, it won't be anything inappropriate, but we do want to warn you for younger ears that this may not be uh, the best episode uh, for the very young It's an incredibly inspiring story. I am so grateful to Ryan for sharing it. And uh, I mean, very literally, it was life-changing. And uh, coming up this week in my Latter-day life, the clouds parted and it was a blessing. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest has had an amazing life story. Ryan Evans, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. Tell us where you're from, where you grew up. I grew up um, in West Valley City. I grew up playing sports there. I mean, 
ever since I was little, I was always a natural with sports. Um, I, that was kind of my escape, you know, and sports is always a place where I can get around and, you know, my brothers and create that, that brotherhood and that bond. Um, were, you, were you born into the church? Oh, no. And matter of fact, I'm Irish, you know, our family is Irish and my grandma, rest in peace, she, she was a stern Irish Catholic woman. <laughs> and so anytime uh, the, the topic of Mormons or LDS came up, it was, uh, right guy, you stay far away from them. They're evil. And it was just this, you know, and then her son, my uncle, uh, my uncle Joel was baptized in the church and she didn't talk to him for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a really strong woman. Oh my goodness. But she, she's amazing. And so yeah. no, I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. So other, so when, when you were say that you were really into sports, what, what sports did you play? Uh, football, baseball, basketball. Um, but my love was football. So one <laughs> of the things, and not to give away too much of your story yet, but uh, you know, some of your twists and turns have been uh, legal. Did that start at a younger age? Like, was that in into your teenage years or was that later in life? I remember I, I, I would play around with weed and alcohol when I was like 12, 13, 14. Um, that was kind of the, the taboo thing. So it was exciting. Um, and I didn't have, you know, that sh- the structure from the father figure. Um, cause my mother, she was very loving and always there for me. Um, but I could do no wrong. My ninth grade year, I remember it, little league football Granger is where I played and I had won the MVP of, of the league. You know, I was presented that trophy. I still have the trophy. It's just really, really big trophy. And it really meant a lot to me because all my teammates were fully supportive of it. And, but it was that summer where I got the girl I was with, I got her pregnant at mm. that young age. How, how old were you again? I was 14 when wow. my daughter was conceived. Yeah. Ryan, and that so, is a lot. I mean, that's for a 14 year old. And I want to go back because you had mentioned that you, you really didn't have the, the father figure steering you. Um, so yeah. was your father out of the picture at that time? My father was very, he was out of the picture in the picture, but my, my father battled, um, he was alcoholic. Mm, very and hard. So very hard. And it wasn't just that he was an alcoholic. He was very mean when he drank. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty intense. I actually have a friend that I grew up with. I remember this Crispin Lason and he's a member of the church and he was, uh, my center football my whole life, but he overheard a phone call with my dad and I, and the way my dad talked to me, I remember Chris was on the other phone, you know, back in the day when the phones were on the walls. Sure. And my dad's just going off and saying things I won't say on the show, but you know, uh, some, some things that you don't tell a child, like break your jaw, you know, type of things. Mm. And some of the things he's saying to me, I, it was normal with my dad, you know? And, and I look at Chris and Chris is in tears. He's like, why would your dad talk to you like that? I'm like, no, oh, bro, it's, it's nothing. It's just my dad, man. He's just drunk, oh you know, gosh. but that was my childhood with, with my dad. He comes back in the picture later in life as we'll probably get to love so him four, to death. 14 years old. Yeah. I mean, and look, it's, Fortunately, we start to realize now that, you know, alcoholism is a disease. The church yeah. even has a 12-step program for it, and that adds a lot of compassion to the story. But 14, you find out that you've got a pregnant girlfriend. How did that go then with telling your mom? Her thing was, 
you know, you're going to go to college and play collegiate football and you're going to end up in the NFL. We'll figure this out with the child. However, we got to figure it out. But my, my daughter's mom's family was not having that. Understandably so. What was the plan? I mean, how, who's raising the daughter and how are you involved at 15? Uh, I didn't really have a plan, to be honest. Um, my daughter's mom actually stepped up to the plate. Awesome. And, and she was the dad and mom. And like, I am so grateful that my daughter ended up with her mm. because she was raised, she was raised correctly. Uh, she was actually raised by a different guy as her dad because I was, um, I spent most of, most of her life in prison. So when uh, did the, when did the troubled time begin for you? Well, it was that ninth grade summer. I just got done with junior high and I was getting ready for high school. Uh, that's when I started, I did the, my first line of meth. You know, it's one thing when people tell me that, you know, they, they smoke marijuana, you kind of understand and it's accessible. Meth just feels like such a big jump and a big bridge. How did that happen? Uh, it was the parties that I was hanging out, you know, the people I was hanging out with drinking and smoking weed that in my mind was nothing major. They brought new drugs to the table and I, I had tried everything else. So I was like, you know, let's try that too. Wow. And it was instant and it pulled me right into that world. I, I've, we've had other recovering addicts on the show who have talked about, you know, some it's like, Hey, I did recreationally meth, but most that we've talked to have said you do meth once and that's it. You, you know, they were, they were hooked. Did you feel that way? Oh yeah. Yep. It's a lifestyle. It, it's, um, I know now that it's the adversary's playground. Um, but back then without the presence of God, you know, in my life, as far as me understanding him, I was a walking target and wow. the adversary took, you know, he just, he pulls you in, it gets dark pretty quick. And then you just become part of that world. It, it, you build up this persona that you believe it's you, you know, I, and then years and years later, you know, for me, at least when I found, you know, our savior, when I found Jesus, it was, you know, it was my fourth prison term after doing oh. 13 years out there. So you start doing meth. Did you start doing it regularly at that young age? Oh, yeah. You, how were you finding meth? It's crazy because, like, we live in a normal world. This is, we go, we get up, we go to work, we come home, we see our family, you know, we do this. It's a routine. Um, and then we have activities, in, you know, in between. Well, the meth world and the drug world, it's, it, it exists in their own normal so what it's, it's, it's their own normal. So they have their own network of people and people, you know, they, they have to go and they're doing their own kind of jobs. And, and so you just, you meet one person and then you meet a group of people. And, and for me, where I, where I grew up, it was literally right behind my house down the street where a lot of the activity was going on. And so I would just sneak out and just go there at nights. How are you affording meth at age 15 yeah so that's that's where part of the the lore comes in and that's where part of the you know the lifestyle comes in because you're out stealing stuff we started stealing bikes and then we started stealing cars and then you sell drugs and then you know everything's open in that world because everything's open and 
at first it, you think it's like, oh yeah, this is a whole new, whole new thing. It's fun. You know, it's cool. I'm getting high and having fun and I don't know these people and I don't know this and I don't know them. And, you know, you justify and justify and, you know, you just don't live a good life when you're doing drugs. Um, at least I didn't. So was your mom aware that you were, that you were doing drugs? Yeah, she caught on. There's not, there wasn't a lot she could do. My yeah. dad wasn't there. You know, even my uncle came in and tried to help, you know, and then my stepdad came in the picture and he kind of helped for a minute. But then I, I just, I'm a, I'm the type of person that if I make my mind up on something, yeah. I'll move mountains. <laughs> sure. It's, I mean, it sounds like it. How was your, how was your schooling affected? Well, I, I tell you what, getting locked up at the age of 15, going in juvie and having to go to school in juvie helped me keep my grades to a point oh, that when I got home, I was able to um, continue on with my high school. So I was able to continue to earn credits. Um, so I was able to stay afloat and, you know, got it. Instead of, instead of drown. What was your first arrest? What were you first arrested for? Drugs. And then it turns into stolen vehicle. And then it turns into fleeing. And then it turns into obstruction of justice into another stolen vehicle. Yeah. I was going hard at it for a long time. So throughout your teenage years, when, when you get into juvie, uh, you know, having been to multiple juvenile detention centers, it, it's a, it's a surprisingly tough place. Did it feel like a wake up call to you? Like, Hey, I don't want to go through this again. It was like, I didn't want to be there, but it was kind of like a rite of passage, mm. right? It was, I'm out here doing things out here, running the streets with people and everybody else has their, you know, their background. So this is just, this is me getting my stripes or me going to jail and it's just rite of passage. And, you know, you think it's cool when you first start going, you think yeah. it's, it makes you tougher and you think, and don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of tough people out there and there's a lot of crazy people out there, and, but there's a lot of people that, you know, deep inside, they don't want to be there. You're in and out of juvie from what I can tell you're, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. You're starting to build up a little bit of a record. Uh, when did it escalate for you? Because it went from uh, juvie into some hard crime. Yeah. I remember I was 17 years old. Um, I had just gotten out of juvie and I had just turned, went from 17 to 18 and I had gotten arrested by an officer. I, I don't even know his name. I was 17. And then when I turned 18, the same officer arrested me again. Mm. And he tells me, he says, you know, Ryan, he said, most people who go from juvenile to adult, they usually, they get maybe one, maybe two felonies and maybe a couple misdemeanors. He goes, but you, and at that point in time, I don't know what I had. I had like eight or 10 new felonies. I had double that in misdemeanors. I, I had a, uh, a booking sheet that was just astronomical and he's like and then what i have you ryan you you go totally off the hook he goes you're 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 gonna end up going to prison so when did you make the leap then from in and out of juvie i mean you, you turn 18 there is a huge difference between being 17 and 11 months and 18 in one day there is a huge, huge. difference where where did your life go from there 
Oh, yeah, I went I went right to jail, right across the street from Juvie. I stole another car, stole a Lexus, and got in a high-speed chase. I went through three counties in a that high-speed high speed chase. chase. Yeah. Were, were yep. you high at the time? Yes, I was. I was, <laughs> yeah. But you must that have was, felt just invincible. Yeah, there's that invincible, but, you know, what a lot of people won't admit to, there's that fear, too, you know? Because when you have the red and blues on you and you, you're getting chased by cops and, you know, it's there's a little, like, uncertainty and there's a little fear, but there's also a lot of rush, you know, and it's like, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's go. And I'm in it now. <laughs> I'm in it, so yeah. I'm not getting out of the car. And so. Were you yeah. still living with your mom at that time? Yes. Wow. This must have been so hard for a mom to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually was talking to somebody else today. There was a point in time right after uh, my senior year in football um, when I, you know, didn't know what else to do. And I was really down on myself. I was having weak moments and I called mom and I was trying to tell her goodbye, you know, cause I didn't, you know, you don't know what to do. And mom tells me, you know what, Ryan, shut up. You're not weak. Don't call me with this weak, this weakness. You are not a weak person. Don't you tell me that you're going to give up. Don't you tell me you're going to leave this world. Don't you do that to me. You know, and it, and it, and it pulled me out of my, my sorrow, you know what I mean? Cause you get in these emotional, emotional ties that just bogs you down and you just, you know, the adversary, he loves to just drop little seeds in your ear. Like, Hey, you suck. Hey, you'll never make it. Hey, you're already this far. Keep falling, you know? And, and if you're not ready, if you're not taught, and if you don't know the gospel, and if you don't understand, you know, the atonement, like you'll believe it. And there's people who still understand all that and still believe it. You know, I have my moments. Now, all of a sudden you're in jail, jail. When did you first go to prison? Um, I went to um, Salt Lake County Jail. I was in Max. They put me in Max. I was in Max for about four months. And I got approved for a program called First Step. And First Step was, it's still around too. It's a really good program. So I was there for about four months. Um, and I graduated. It was a Sunday. I, I finally completed my programming. I ended up relapsing that night and... A couple months later, my PO came over. I was already back in, back involved in, in, you know, the drug scene. And they had found a, I had a 22 Ruger rifle in my closet. Mm. I don't know what for, but I didn't need it. And um, my PO found it and he tells me, you know, cause I didn't want to say where I got it. We went back and forth for a minute and he says, you know what, Ryan, I'm sending you to federal prison. And I said, well, do what you got to do, man. And so I didn't think he was serious, but he was. So I ended up um, getting 36 months. So this is 36 months now you're sentenced in prison. I got to imagine. I mean, how is that not just absolutely terrifying? You know, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I remember my, my lawyer came and see me and um, she was telling me, hey, Ryan, here's what they're offering. And I said, cool, let's go jump on it. And she's like, wait, wait, let's see if we can get something else. I said, no, I said, I'm good. Get me out of this jail. Because anybody who's gone to ADC, Salt Lake County Jail, and been in Max, you understand that it's just horrible. You know, it's not a good place. You know, lockup period is, is horrible. But ADC takes the cake when you go to ADC Max. 
Wow. Um, it's just, they don't, you starve and it's loud. And I was there for a while and I just got used to it. But when I had the option to go to prison or stay in that jail, I, I was ready to go to prison. What's that like that first day? I fished in. That's what they call it when you, when you're a new number, when you're brand new to the prison system and you go to prison for your first time, they call it fishing in. So I fished in 19 years old at in a federal prison in California called Taft FCI. And that was outside of Bakersfield, California. So older numbers would always try to school the younger, younger fish and try to teach you the ropes, teach you, you know, how to, you know, clean the cell, how to be on top of your game, how to, you know, stay out of trouble, how to avoid trouble and all this. So by the time I got to federal prison, you know, here I was 19 years old, 175 pounds, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, barely any tattoos on me. And, you know, I'm in California walking onto a federal prison yard. And so, wow. Um, it, it was different from what I expected because I, I build it up in my head that when you get there, people, you got to let them know that you're not, not some chump and you're not going to back down. And, but it's really, it's really not like that. You know, you go, you go through situations like that. Yeah. People test you and all that. But when I got there, I was, I had to find our dorm and people were like, yeah, man, you go over here and your dorm's really? up top. And yeah, <laughs> you know, and it, and, it, it was just, it was different from what I expected. And the fact that, you know, people, uh, people are there just doing their own time. There's knuckleheads. There's people that are rude. There's, there's obviously gang stuff going on, drugs, but a lot of the old timers that have been out there for a long time, they just want to be left alone. Yeah. They just want to yeah. serve their time. huh? Yeah. So did you find drugs while you were in prison? Did you continue to use drugs? <laughs> I did. I actually I remember at Taft, it was around Christmas time, you know, I was getting ready for bed actually. And a, a friend of mine there came and grabbed me and, you know, we went to the, one of the other uh, buildings over there cause it's open movement in federal prison and um, went over there and did a line of meth. I remember writing my family and I was like, man, this, this is like a whole new world in here. And it was, it was like a world inside of our world. It was a crazy experience, but yes, I did news out there. So what was the most surprising thing to you about prison? The amount of time some of those guys are out there doing, you take for granted. I mean, I did. I obviously did for a long time. I took for granted my freedom, all my many blessings, because I didn't. I didn't look at it like that. I was always looking at things I didn't have, things I was trying to get, how the system did me wrong, and blah blah blah. But you know, you get out there and you get around people that are doing thirty years, forty years, life, no possibility of parole in prison. It's Groundhog Day. Nothing changes in there. It's the same routine, day in and day out. It's Groundhog Day for real. And so that was most surprising to me, to, that reality aspect of it. So did you end up serving all three years or did you get out early? My attorney took it to, to the judge. So instead of doing 36 months, I did 30 months. And then I completed their drug program. And then I was eligible for their halfway house. Did you leave prison thinking, okay, I'm done? time to clean up my act or did you think no i'll go back to it i just won't get caught well i, I was uh, i told this when i gave a talk to the youth i remember when i left federal prison because i left from uh lompoc fci and that's that's another prison that's what that's where i left from um because i transferred down there to do their drug program 
Yeah, Lompoc down in uh, Southern California. Yep. Yeah. They actually have palm trees in their in their yard and <laughs> Yeah, I know Lompoc. I, was, I know that area. Yeah. Um so it was <clears throat> I remember the fellows walking me to the door. And I remember giving all of them hugs and I remember when that door shut, I was sad, you know, because I had built up mm. this bond. And so I was sad, but I was happy to go home. Um, I remember getting to the halfway house and I remember I had a really bad dream. And in the dream, I I, had, I was back in prison. I was back in a cell. I just remember feeling like I, didn't, I did not want that. Like it was a, a sick feeling. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was uh, that was a vision of what was coming. And it was going to be for a long time. Oh, gosh. So how long before, how long were you out before you got in trouble with the law? And was it, was it a slippery slope? Was it sort of just one, one little thing after another little thing? Or did you jump back into your old life? I jumped back in head first. I remember telling people I'd go with my friends to drug houses. And I remember telling them, like, look, I can't get high right now. I'm at the halfway house, but I'll be back. I'll be back in a, in a month or two. Wow. So I, I was already setting it up to relapse, you know, looking back on it, it's like, what was I doing? You know? Right. Yeah. You're preparing for that. All right. So you're right back in with your old friends, your old, your old ways. Did your, did your parole officer not do surprise drug tests on you? Oh yeah. And when I was at the, the halfway house, I was good. It's when I went home and my drug test became once a month. Oh, okay. I knew once I, that month UA came, I was like, cool, I got a month. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you'll clean up then. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then when was your next legal encounter? I was out of the halfway house um, about two months and it wasn't another two months where, I mean, I, I got out and I was already back in drugs. So and I must've lasted maybe two months. So what had happened, my, my stepdad came in the room one night and he's like, Ryan, whatever you do, just please stay home. You don't need to go anywhere. Uh, as soon as he walked out of the room and, you know, went back into his room, I, I left. I ended up getting in a fight with somebody that I grew up with. Um, I hit him three times and one of the three hits hyperextended his neck and it lacerated his artery. And, you know, I didn't know it, but it was causing hemorrhaging of the brain. But after I hit him the last time, I remember I walked out of the room and, you know, I got halfway down the hallway and something, you know, told me to go back in that room. So I turn around, I go back in that room and, you know, there, there's Jared, he's laying on the, on the ground and um, his lips are, are blue and it, it looks like he's not breathing. And, and then people start, they're starting to panic. They're like, Ryan, what'd you do? And, and I didn't know I, it was to me, it was just another fight, you know, because when you grow up like that, fights happen all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so the owner of the house, you know, um, tried to give him CPR and it wasn't working. So I, I picked him up and gave him the Heimlich because years before my mom was, was choking on an orange and she taught me while she was choking how to, you know, do the Heimlich, which, you know, yeah. the orange, thank God that it came out and she was able to live. And so I, I did what I knew. I yeah. grabbed Jared and I put him in the Heimlich and I, and I hit him a couple of times. And I remember he let out this breath and the, he took a deep breath out and in. And it was, 
it was a sound that I'll never forget. I'll never forget that sound. And I just remember at that point in time, all, all I could think about was getting them to the hospital and we was carrying, you know, the owner of the house and somebody else carrying them. I, I ran to the car and opened up the back seat and we put them in the back seat. And um, I told the owner, owner of the car, get in the back seat and just keep them alive to the hospital, you know, keep them alive. And I took them down um, 3100 South down towards Pioneer. And I remember I pulled up to Pioneer and there's a couple of nurses walking by and they came out and I remember I opened up the back door and I grabbed Jared. And I remember I looked down and I get like, I knew, you know, I knew that he was going to die and mm. it was my fault, you know? And there's not a lot you could tell somebody at that moment, you know, there's not, Hey man, your friend's going to be all right. Or, Hey, um, you know, there's, there's just not a lot. It, it's, it's, I was there in the world, but I was detached. I was removed. I was, you know, I wasn't a part of it. It felt like it was just not a good feeling. And I remember telling everybody, I remember asking everybody, excuse me. I remember asking the doctors and, Everybody who worked there, I just kept asking, is he dead? You know, they're like, we don't know, sir. Just go sit down. And because in my mind, it was the old law of Moses, even though I didn't know the law of Moses then, but it was the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I sure, I I knew that. I've known that for a long time. So in my mind, it was, well, if he's, if he's dead, I got to, I have to join him, you know? And so I kept asking everybody, you know, is he dead? Is he dead? And nobody would tell me anything. And so I remember the cops came and I had somebody there with me and he tells me, you know, just go along with the story, right? I got a story, just follow my lead, you know, and at that point in time, I'm just numb. I'm like, all right, whatever. The cop talks to us and the guy that was with me, he's like, hey, we're, we're walking home in West Valley and we're crossing Parkway Park and we overheard some, a commotion, some screams. And, and so we just... Um, went over there and intervened and it was Jerry getting jumped. And so I just followed along with the story, which at that point in time, Sean, I should have just owned up to it. You know, that's, that's, that's when you, you man up and say, no, this interview can stop. I did this. I need to face it, but I didn't. And so that's because I've always been an honest human being. And so that was the turmoil that I was going through. Like I was not being honest and it was really impacting me. And, um, you know, the cops said, okay, well, I got your name. I got all your info. We'll be in touch. Thank you guys for helping. And, and then uh, they gave me Jared's property and said, hey, will you contact his family? Make, let him know that he's being lifelighted to the University of Utah. I said, absolutely. I left a message on his mom's voicemail. And even then I could have, you know, came clean and I didn't. And it, that affected me too for a long, long time. And then, you know, I went up to the U and by the time I got up there, I I got up there twice. The first time he was in critical condition. I couldn't see him. And then the second time got to the hospital and I remember walking in and uh, into the family, you know, the visiting room and um, a lot of his family was there and a couple of his family members actually stood up and came over and gave me a hug. Mm. And um, thanked me for helping. And which 
was one of the worst moments in my life, hands down. That was a horrible moment. And especially being somebody who prides himself on being honest. And, you know, at that point in time, that, that was the farthest thing that I was. I was not honest. I was a liar, you know. So it was just a horrible moment. And I remember they, the, the detective interviewed me again. I told him the same story. And I didn't know it at the time, but the friend that was with me at Pioneer Valley Hospital, when we separated and I went up to the University of Utah, he drove over to West Valley PD and, and told him what happened, the true story. I remember at the hospital after the, I was interviewed with the detective, I asked him if I can go see Jared because he was on his on on the bed and he was they were able to you know visitors were able to see him and he said yeah you can go see him um and so i walk into the the room and i remember i was at the door and i looked in i didn't recognize him his face had swollen up so much and his head and like that's a horrible feeling you know that that i caused that i remember i walked over to his his bed and you know I kissed his forehead and, and, you know, and I asked him, I said, please forgive me. You know, at that point in time, it is, I was just, it, it wasn't a good situation. I felt like crap. There's families out there. And here is somebody that I knew since the fourth grade lying in the hospital bed, dying yeah. because, because of me dying yeah. because I got involved with meth and, and gangs and drugs and, and doing things that, you know, normally I would have been playing football and, you know, working myself up to ask a girl out or learning some type of college curriculum or, or something like that. But here I was, you know, saying goodbye to a friend. Jared ended up passing away. Yeah, they, I got arrested. Um, and then they booked me into Salt County Jail and I was on a phone call. Um, and on that phone call, this was a few hours later. Um, it was my, my girlfriend at the time, you know, cuts in cause I was on a bunch of three ways with everybody. And she had said, babe, babe. And I was like, what? And she's like, they just pronounced you're dead. And, you know, at that point in time, it's like, okay, well, you know, there's no going, going back. You know, I've already, they booked me in because I admitted what I did. I told the officers, you know, I did this and I told them exactly what happened. And I told them nobody else was involved and they let everybody else go. And, you know, because at the end of the day, it was me. I made a stupid choice. What did they end up charging you with? So when I first got bo booked in, it was um, first degree attempted murder um, with injury. And, and then they, they had that 72 hour window to file formal charges. Um, and the formal charges was, uh, manslaughter. So it was a one to 15 manslaughter, um, uh, with a zero to five obstruction of justice. Um, I had a good attorney, thank God that he, he had, you know, placed people in my life to help me with an attorney, because if I didn't have one, I would have, I would have been facing 20 years out there, but I took it to trial and they reduced it <coughs> to, from a, from a manslaughter, which is. The definition of manslaughter is knowing or should have known you were going to cause death. Mm. And my attorney's stance was, how's 
how's anybody going to know that you're going to cause death with three hits? And if, if he knew he was going to cause death, why did he take him to the hospital? And the jury saw that and they're like, okay, we see that. So they charged me with homicide by assault. And that's what I did. I, I assaulted, you know, my friend and he ended up dying. And uh, they gave me the obstruction of justice because I lied to the cops. Um, and I did that too. I, I did that. Yeah. And so I um, I was sentenced to uh, the Utah State Prison for uh, no less than one year and no more than 10 years. Mm. And I ended up going out to Draper um, Draper uh, Correctional Facility out there for, I, I did seven years. And wow. yeah, and that's seven years I got home and everything had changed and I didn't make it out 10 months. And then I was back at Unify, which is old death row. And, you know, they gave me 25 months. They expirated me because that's how much time I had remaining. They gave me every, every day of it. They said, no, you're no, you're doing every day of it. So, and they shot me down to Gunnison. So you, Gunnison. you got out, you, you were out and then you reoffended. Yeah, I got, I relapsed and, um, I didn't catch any charges, but I was, I was failing UAs and, um, not doing parole stuff and just not doing what I should have been doing. So they violated my parole and sent me back to prison. Wow. My gosh, Ryan, I just, was there any time in this period that you gave up hope that you just thought, you know, my life is gone. It's lost. Yeah. That, so after I went to Gunnison, um, I was there for about two years. I was on the horse crew, which was awesome. Uh, there, there's a um, officer down there named uh, JB and, and Owens. That, those guys had a huge impact on my life and taught me a lot about horses and, and about being, you know, a responsible man. And and so I started to change. I started to read different books. I started to have different conversations. And I got out. And I remember I had the attitude of like I was just like. The system did this to me. I spent this many years out here, woes me, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And it was at this time where my life became dark. And mm. I've had many experiences with, I felt dark spirits around me. I have felt evilness around me. And so when I talk to people and I tell them I found God, I'm like, yeah, I found God. But it wasn't when I got locked up. It took me four prison sentences in 16 years to find him. You know, with all juvie and all the 13 years in prison, like I, I didn't find them till my last couple of years. And, and so when people start having doubts or fears or, you know, they say, well, I fell away from the church and this, that, I'm like that, you know, I don't understand that because I know evil. I've seen it. I've lived it. I've walked it. I know that sick, evil feeling. And I know that darkness. And there was a point in time where, I, I would look up to the sky and I looked up and I said, God, why don't you bring me home? Why don't you let me face my fears or face my sins? Why don't we, why don't we just get on with this and you can do what you need to do with me. I'm done with this world. So yeah, I did lose hope. I, I lost hope and I, I replaced it with anger and hate. And I lived out here for 13 months of pure hell and it was just darkness. It was not okay. I had so many different experiences of, you know, going through what I went through, but it was dark. Hmm. And so, yeah, there were, there were point in times where I literally would look up at the sky and ask God, please just, just bring me home, man. Like 
I'm done. Like, there's no reason for me to, to be here anymore. Like I, I can't obviously can't live right. I can't get my life right. So why don't you just bring me home? And, you know, I had a, I had a conversation at, at the time she was 10. She was my niece, a really good friend of mine. It was his daughter. And, and this was, this was another time where, where hope was, was gone. You know, it was, uh, I felt like I was mad, but she looks at me and says, uncle Rye, why are you sad? Mm. I said, I'm not sad. And, and, uh, we're outside talking and she says, uh, uncle Rye, what's going on? Why are you sad? And I said, look, Maddie, I, I love you, but I'm not always going to be here, you know, cause there's not, it's a 10 year old. You can't say too much to a 10 year old. Right. Right. It's, it's like, I love you kid. I hope you do well. And you know, but I just said, look, I'm not always going to be here. And she said, well, where are you going? I said, well, one of these days I'm going to have to go see God and face up for what I've done. And that's okay. Mm. And she says, she's the, the next couple of things she says to me really opened the door for me. She says, uncle Rye, God loves you. And, and my response was, yeah, yeah, of course. I hear it all the time. God loves me. God forgive me. You know? And I said, cool. Thanks. She says, Uncle Rye, God's not ready for you to come home. And I stopped and I looked at her and I said, what'd you just say? And she said, he's not ready for you to come home. And I said, how would you know that? I'm 10 years old. Who told you to say that? She's like, nobody. I've gone to church. I know. And she says, you know, he has some things for you to do. And I said, what do you mean he has some things for me to do? He's not done with you yet. Mm. And it, I brought tears to my eyes and she looks at me and she says, uncle Rye, are you crying? I said, no. She was, yeah, you are. I made you cry. <laughs> and I, I remember like this 10 year old child, like seeing through me. Right. And then I, you know, I end up getting locked up and I, and I, I get sent to Beaver and you know, it was a blessing. It was an absolute blessing because I'd have made a comment to um, my girlfriend's dad because they're strong LDS and his name's Grant. And Grant tells me, he says, Hey Ryan, have you read the book of Mormon? I said, no, but when I do, I'll read it start to finish. Hmm. He said, okay. And he just looks at me and he goes, okay. And I said the same thing to um, a guy named Mark. Mark Levitt, he, uh, I met him down in Beaver and, and Mark tells me, he says, uh, you know, yeah, you should, mm. and you should start right now. And so I took it as a challenge. And so I was like, okay, I'll start reading. So I didn't start the book of Mormon. I started with the Holy Bible, old Testament. I, I started reading that. And a friend of mine, Anthony stops and he tells me, he says, Ryan, you swear a lot. And I said, what? What the F are you talking about? And he says, see, right there. And I didn't even catch it. And this is the guy that I used to run the streets with. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I swear a lot. And he says, you need a blessing. I said, a blessing? What's a blessing? What are you talking about? And he looks over at Mark. He says, Mark, tell him he needs a blessing. And Mark goes, absolutely. I said, okay. And so Anthony goes, give me your word. And so I gave my word and I end up on Thursday night with the volunteers. I got a blessing and I remember it was uh, Yardley, brother Yardley, ex-alcoholic, been clean for like 20 years, member of the church. 
and a guy that I just related to right off the bat. And he says, Brother Evans, I'm going to give you this blessing and I'm going to help you. I'm going to be here for you and I'm going to help you with whatever I can, brother. You're going to be okay. And I remember thinking, man, all right, but you don't know what I've done, you know? And he gives me this blessing. And then the, the following Sunday is fast and testimony. And so here I am in church and I got people that I've known in, in the system for a long time. They're like, Hey, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to church. They're like, for what? Who are you going to go meet? <laughs> I said, I'm no, I'm going to church for God. And they're like, you, Ryan Evans are going to church for church. I said, yes. And people were blown away. Cause I was, I never did that. And I remember sitting in there for fasting testimony and they were talking about the atonement, the atonement, this, the atonement, that. And I'm like, I put my hand up and I said, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but what is this atonement? What are you talking about? I have no idea what that means. And the guy looked at me and said, it's okay. It's all right. And he told me, he broke down the atonement. And I said, hold on. So you're telling me, right? Here comes this hope piece. You're telling me that I have hope. He said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I said, but you don't know what I've done. Come on, brother. You don't know what I've done. He said, no, you have not descended farther than our Savior. Mm. His, our, his reach is everlasting. And I promise you, you have not fallen far enough. And, it, and the, the Holy Spirit confirmed that because wow. I didn't have an argument. And so, and then they start fasting testimony and then Mark gets up and I'm watching Mark get up. And he walks to the podium. I'm like, what is he doing? Where are you going? <laughs> right. <laughs> and Mark gets up there and he bears his testimony and, and me being, you know, the friend I am, I'm like, okay, well, I'll go up there too. You know? And I get up there and I turn and face and there's a lot of boys I grew up with a lot of, you know, the small brothers that I know and Tonga brothers that I know. And a lot of people that I've grown up my whole life. Right. And I look out there and the spirit just uppercuts me. Right. And the, 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 my eyes get water and I, I, I put my head back and I remember I'm talking to everybody with my head all the way back because I don't want my tears to fall because you know, it's a pride thing. Sure. And I, and I said, look, I'm here for, for me. I want to change. I'm tired of losing. And I looked up and I said, if God can help me, then I'm ready. Hmm. And I, I can't remember everything else I said, but that was a really powerful moment. And then I went on to read the entire Old Testament, the New Testament a few times. And then Mark tells me, this is about a year later, Mark goes, hey, brother, have you read the Book of Mormon? <clears throat> I said, no, I, I got to get through the, old, the New Testament again. He goes, oh, you can't read two books at the same time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I started reading the Book of Mormon, and that is the most well-written, beautifully put together book I've ever read. And I've read a lot mm. and I've read that and I still read it. Um, I still read it to this day. It's part, it's what we do with come follow me. It's our daily reading. It's what we do. And I'm grateful for it. And then I read Jesus, the Christ by James E. Talmadge. And I just started it for the second time. And awesome. then I started reading like, Roll, you know, what is it? Um, Roll to glory. Or I can't remember that. The, the novel series, the work in the glory. Yeah. The uh, work in the glory. So beautiful. And it got me, it gave me appreciation of what the pioneers went through and 
what they had to face in, in, in the winter and being chased out of their homes and bleeding and leaving trails of blood everywhere. And they're just trying to, you know, Joseph Smith is in jail and he's looking up at God and, he's, and that's where DNC comes in. He's like, you know, what, how long are you going to stay your hand? And that's yeah. when God tells him, look, even if the gates of hell open up to take you, just know my son is for your experience. For your experience. Good. Yeah. And when I read all that, yeah, it's for your good. And I was like, you mean this is God talking to Joseph Smith, right? And here I am in the same kind of situation, but I wasn't doing righteously like Joseph was. I was doing wicked. I was living wrong. And to know that somebody who left such a mark like Joseph Smith did and helped get the restored gospel to all of us who desperately need it. You know, I, I just was blown away that there was more people that I could relate to in scriptures, you know, wow. Saul before it became Paul, all of the younger, you know, and it, it, there's just so many, even Peter, when he denies Christ for the third time, like I've asked myself many times, like, would I have done that too? I probably would have, mm. you know, I would yeah. have all this vigor and all this strength, but when it came down to it, I would, you know, in that moment. What a beautiful transformation. I mean, I can hear the hope. I can literally hear your voice change as you're talking about this time in your life. Um, how long after that first uh, fast and testimony meeting was it before you were baptized? Oh, I got out probably about 18 months later. A year later, uh, no, about 18 months later, something like that. And then I had to, I had to wait 18 months because I was on parole. And Mm. I remember my bishop, Bishop Olson, and, you know, the missionaries, I had new missionaries. And they're like, you know how they do the, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I'm like, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. And they're like, well, would you get baptized today right now if you could? I said, Show me where that water is. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> like, they're like, okay, let's set up your baptism. And then, you know, poor Bishop Olson, he had to reach out to me. He's like, Brother Evans, you're a different case. We we cannot baptize you. Not yet. You have to wait. And I was mad. I remember sitting in his office. I was mad. I was like, how are you going to tell me? Like, I know. I read scripture. I know. I studied. Like, I'm the one. Like, I need Jesus. Like, I need to go under that water. I accept him. I've accepted him a long time ago. I need it. He's like, brother, just please, just trust me and just trust God, please. And so I said, okay, I trust God. And, and, and you know what, that 18 months, I had to learn some things and I had to go through some things. Mm. I was not ready to be baptized at that point in time. But at the end of that 18 months, you know, I go to my baptism and I just, I only posted it. I posted it on Facebook. I didn't message anybody. I just put out a little post said, Hey, I'm getting baptized on this day. You're all welcome. You know, not thinking anything of it. And I had over like, I had over 200 people show up to my baptism. Hmm. And I had people in regular clothes, jeans, dressed up. I had every walks of life. And that's beautiful. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. And I remember yeah. going into the baptism. And I tell you what, Sean, this was, I had a friend, his name, he just passed away. Rest in peace, Marcus. He was blind. And, and Marcus, uh, they put him up front at the baptismal font. and um, Jeff Osman, he's the one that baptized me, you know, I'm so grateful for him and his family and, you know, sister, um, Osman, Stephanie, and I mean, they just have a, an incredible family and Jeff and, 
Jeff is all psyched up. He's like, I'm going to promise I'm going to get you out of the water. I won't drop you, brother. <laughs> and, he, and, you know, they, they file everybody in and we're in the water and, you know, he dunks me under the water and, and I come out and I remember my first breath is a, it's a, is the sound that I'll never forget. Like the breath when Jared gave, you know, that, that tragic night, this was, this was my old self leaving as well. And I, you know, uh, my friend Marcus, later on when I was driving him home, he says, bro, when he came out of that water, that first breath you had, that sound it made, he goes, that sound, he goes, that was intense. Mm. He goes, I'll never forget that sound. And so it's always stuck with me. And, and when Jeff and I went to the back dressing room, we didn't know it at the time, but everybody started clapping and cheering, you know, <laughs> after I got baptized, because I remember I came out of the water, I said, hey, did all of me go in? <laughs> and like yes brother all of you went in because i want to make sure i all me went in i need to make sure love it It was just a special moment you know and oh. it's just been special ryan this is a, such an amazing experience yeah. i want to make sure we talk about uh so elephant and this mission of yours and what what you've turned so elephant into and i want to understand what so elephant is and i want to make sure our listeners know it's so elephant not S-E-W. It's not a sewing club. Uh, so Elephant. <laughs> Tell us what So Elephant is. So first of all, yeah, So Elephant. It is S-O Elephant. So it's um, it's a state of mind. It's that mindset. It's that power statement. It's uh, I'm going to go out here. I'm going to do everything the way God needs me to do it. I'm going to do a big So Elephant, right? I'm going to go out and succeed. I'm going to go out and make an impact. I'm going to do a big So Elephant. Like it, it's that statement. It's that when you look in the mirror and I'm looking at what's looking back at me, I know it's up to me to succeed. I know it's up for me, up to me to walk the walk and lead by example. That's one of my, one of the best phrases I have. And I use it every, every day, like, cause I run four sober living houses now and I'm, I'm constantly doing house meetings. I'm constantly with these guys that are battling addiction and, you know, and I, I have, you know, given, been given a great opportunity uh, with Jeff Penrose and, and he has just helped me come out and, and run these programs. And I tell these guys all the time, I'm like, look, man, you know what? Lead by example. Like, don't talk about it. Like, so elephant is that it's, it's, you know what? Lead by example, do the next right thing. Cause that's what grandma always taught me and my mom and, and my dad and my uncle and, and my dad and I, you know, are good before he passed, you know, mm. he, him, him and I got, we're okay. You know, and I got to know awesome. my dad and I just want, I just want to highlight that because yeah. he was an alcoholic and, but he's not perfect. And, but he's my dad and I love him and I know he's okay. And, that's wonderful. And so, yeah. And that, the soul elephant, that's what, it, that's what it's about. It's about all of us, every one of us. It's about you, Sean. It's about Gene. It's about me. It's about, you know, KJ. It's about Mark Levitt. It's about all of us. There's so many different stories. I have so many friends in the recovery community my softball team the haven you know i i just have so many people that wear so elephant they rep so elephant they live so elephant and they are so elephant and it's <laughs> it's just been such a blessing so it, it is yeah, i tell people all the time so elephant is everything good it's right over wrong it's good over evil it's light over darkness I, I hate to tell you, but I am so stealing this. I am going to start using it like <laughs> left and right. Like, hey, guys, if we're going to do this, let's do it so elephant, man. Let's just do it so elephant and go all the way. We're storming this thing. So 
And if people, you've now turned this into a little bit of a business. Um, if people want to follow So Elephant, they can find it on Facebook. Where else? Yeah, Facebook, uh, So So Elephant, um, Instagram at underscore So Elephant. I also have my website up www.soelephant.com awesome um, you know the, the story's on there as well i got clothes on there and it's really cool just cool stuff your life did you ever imagine back in the day that you would be where you are now no not at all not at all it's just amazing what the lord knows and i'm i'm on so elephant on the website now you've got some great looking clothes on here so I designed those too. So <laughs> it took a long time. It's uh, awesome stuff. You got jewelry fun. on here. You got sweatshirts, tank tops, all kinds of stuff. So uh, it is fantastic. This has been such a wonderful message. Before I ask you the final question, I want to ask one, one more question because I think that you can add a lot of value here right now. There is someone listening whose son or daughter is lost whose spouse is addicted, who they don't know where their children are, they don't know where their father is, or maybe they themselves are lost and they're listening going, hey, you know, that's great for Ryan, but that's not me. What message do you have for people who have lost hope either for themselves or for someone else? What message do you have for them? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, right? That to me has been one of the most powerful parts of scripture that I've read because when I read that, when I had those moments of doubt, God was telling, God tells us, look, I got you, okay? I got you. You're going to pull through this. And, but for family members, I know it gets hard. I know it's tough. I know there's, there's the loss of hope. I do. I know that. But the best thing to to tell people is sometimes tough love is necessary. Sometimes you have to let people go through their own journey, but you have to do it. You know, you've got to know that they're going to be either they're going to make it or they're going to make some really dumb choices. But the one thing they got to know is that you're always going to be there. Mm. Like you're going to once they feel lost and alone and gotten and unloved, then what do they got? What's left? Right. Right. What's left? Like if you don't know that people love you and, and care and, and that's there, mm. that's a, that's a tough feeling and it's a tough hole to climb out of. That is really powerful. Uh, Ryan, I just am so impressed with where you are now and, and what a beautiful message you're sharing. We're going to wrap up this conversation with the question we ask all of our guests. And that is Ryan, mm-hmm. what's being a member of the church mean to you? Well, I am truly grateful that I um, am a member of this church for the simple fact is I know my Savior. I know that Jesus is the Christ and and that I'm not lost. Like Whoever is hearing this, whoever is listening to this podcast and taking the time to hear this, I'm telling you that God is real. He is real. He is real. He is real. And nothing that this life throws at us is worth losing our faith in Jesus. 
or losing our balance or forgetting where or who we are. Like I, this church to me, like I am so grateful that I'm a part of this amazing church and I'm so grateful for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm, I bear testimony of that in his beautiful and holy name in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. He is a man who has had hard times. He has served hard time and he is now bringing so much light to the world. Ryan Evans, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, brother. It's been an honor. And my special thanks to my guest, Ryan Evans. I was so blown away by Ryan. Um, Even editing it, as I was editing this episode, I was brought to tears once again by what he has been through and what he has turned his life into. What a blessing he is for me and so many people. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I've been in Oregon on the coast all week, and I just love it here. What a beautiful place. But for those who know the Pacific Northwest, you know that it rains here. And one of the mornings that we were here, I got up and, you know, I've been trying to exercise more. Uh, Many years ago, I used to run quite a bit and I've kind of gotten back into running, but I'm so darn out of shape. I do want to give a special shout out to my friend Russ Gould, with whom I served on the mission. And Russ is a runner. I got to see him a few weeks ago when he was in town for a marathon. We're the same age. And if Russ can run, I can run too. So I'm doing very short amounts, definitely not marathon length like Russ. But I got up and I was ready to run and I looked out the window and it was raining. Not surprising for Oregon or the Pacific Northwest, but it was raining pretty hard. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to go out. I can't handle getting soaked, whatever. And I had said my morning prayers that morning that I would be able to go out for a quick run. And I finally just felt this prompting to go. Just go. Get outside and run. And what's the worst that could happen? I could get wet. And I got out and started, and when I say running, jogging is jogging is definitely a more appropriate word for it. So I got out and I was jogging, and within about the first minute of getting out on this run, uh, all of a sudden the rain stopped. And within a couple minutes later, the clouds had completely parted, and it was sunny and breezy and beautiful, and the weather was so perfect for this run. And I just went and did a couple of miles But as I was running, I got to pondering. It's one of the reasons I really love running, is I got to ponder and think. And I thought, what a blessing this is. I am so blessed. Heavenly Father chose this time for the rain to end and that I was able to run in such beautiful weather. But this got me to thinking about what would have happened if the rain had not stopped? Does that mean that I'm not blessed? And of course not. And I think sometimes we think that way. It's easy to see the obvious blessings when we get what we wanted, uh, which was, you know, that that's what happened. But uh, I was here in Oregon, well, maybe a month, month and a half ago, and I was out on the beach, you know, once again, running, jogging, and halfway through my run, the rain came and I got soaked. Did that mean I wasn't blessed that time? And I think that I realized that time that, no, there was a big blessing that half my run was in the sun, but also the rain kind of felt good because I was a little bit overheated (laughs) during my run, so I enjoyed the rain. 
And other times it's raining so hard or it's so cold, especially where I live in Utah, or maybe the snow's coming that I can't get out and run at all. And what a blessing that is to find things to do inside and to find other things to do. I've heard criticism of Christianity that just we call everything a blessing. Everything is find the blessing. And I think that's fair. But it's not criticism. It's real. The blessings are always there. We just have to find them. And it's to us to figure out what is the blessing of this situation. And when we live in abundance, when we live in a time of blessing, when we're able to say, I'm blessed because of the clouds parting, and I'm blessed because of the rain, and I'm blessed because of whatever the circumstances, and find those blessings, that's where we truly see God. I'm so grateful that he blesses us in so many ways. I'm grateful that it's not the same blessing. How boring it would be if every time I walked out the door, the clouds parted and there was no rain. That would not make for an interesting life. I'm grateful that every morning I get to get up and see the different blessings and try to find how he has touched my life. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in with us again. We really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show, do you know someone else who would enjoy it? Is there a neighbor, a friend, someone you minister to, someone in your ward that you could tell about the show and share these amazing stories of faith? Uh, If you could leave us a five-star review, that sure does help us, as we've said before, to be found. And we really appreciate all of our reviewers. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's about all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.